Amen. Well, guys, almost a year to the day from when we started 1 Corinthians, let's turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, if you have your Bibles with you. Chapter 1, because it's first. And now, God, may your spirit speak to your people. Lord, through a mouth such as this, I pray, God, that the spirit of the one who created heaven and earth, or the one of, who is infinite wisdom, that you would speak, Lord, through me, that I would be nothing more, Lord, than a mouthpiece for your word. I pray, God, that your spirit would remove veils and open eyes and awaken spirits to the realities of your truth. I pray, God, that for those that are here this morning that are hurting, that this would be a supreme comfort to them as they turn their eyes to you. And I pray, God, that for those who are not, that, Lord, you would empower us and motivate us and show us by your word the opportunity for ministry to those who are. Lord, we even pray as we start this series, going through this particular book, I pray, God, that you would have your way in your church Lord, however long we may spend studying it, I pray, God, that not one of your words will fall to the ground in this room. And I pray, God, that there would be great fruit from our time in your word, that you would bring great comfort to people and great ministry in your church, and that, Lord, we would find ourselves plumbing the depths of your greatness, your theology, your understanding, but, Lord, never taking our eyes away from your son, Jesus and the glory that he displayed in the gospel. So that is our desire, Lord. Make it our desire, Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First Corinthians, no, that's going to take a while. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it's been a while. I don't expect everything to necessarily ring a bell. Like I said, it's been a year since we started 1 Corinthians, but maybe there's a, something that resonates as familiar in this particular passage as we look at it this morning, because it's an almost identical introduction to the one Paul gave when he started his first letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. It's an almost identical beginning to the second letter that he writes to the first letter. Now, when Paul wrote that the first time, he wrote it for a very supreme purpose. The church was going through all sorts of what we might refer to in our modern English as gnarliness. That church was as messed up as any church ever. The things going on in there, the improprieties, the sin. It was unbelievable what was going on in this church that Paul had started. 
And so Paul was writing to address things like sexual immorality, people sleeping with their mom, about getting drunk during communion at church gatherings, about all sorts of things, lawsuits within the church. There were all kinds of even hot button topics. And so when Paul started 1 Corinthians, he wanted to right out the gate, make sure they understood the identity of the person writing the letter and the identity of the person receiving the letter. So Paul wrote to them and he says, Paul, an apostle called by the will of God. I mean, he's about to deal with some really difficult things, right? So he starts 1 Corinthians by saying, I'm called by God to be his apostle. He's asserting his authority and his right, if you will, to speak some really hard, difficult things to the church. I mean, if someone just came up to you, looked at your life and started saying, you need to change this, 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 and this, and you'd never seen them before, you might go, who are you? And what gives you the authority to say these kind of things? And so Paul starts out his letter, 1 Corinthians, I'm called by the will of God. And then in the second part, he tells them, you're the church of God. You're God's church, literally. You the people, not the institution. You the people are God's church. So my identity gives me the authority to speak into your life, but your identity requires you to listen to the word of God because you are God's church. And so God has sent an apostle to speak to you, and you are God's, so listen up. So Paul deals with a whole bunch of stuff in 1 Corinthians. We just spent the last year looking at all these things. So the question would be, why does Paul start 2 Corinthians the same way? I mean, I've been saying as we've been leading up to this passage, this this particular series, that that 2 Corinthians is going to have a different feel to it. So why is it that God, or excuse me, Paul, God through Paul, starts out this passage in the same way? Why would these two letters that are so different with such different purposes start out in the same way? I think it'd be helpful for us to understand the in-between, if we can, so to speak, read between the lines. There is a lot that goes down between the time 1 Corinthians is written and the time 2 Corinthians is written. And it's very helpful for us because it's going it's to give us a framework by which we will be able to understand what's being said in this particular passage. So as you guys know, Paul planted the church in Corinth around A.D. 50. And then kind of started the church there. He was there for a while, but he goes on to Ephesus and Antioch and continues on in his missionary journey. But when when Paul left, his physical absence from Corinth left a vacuum of leadership. And they suffered with regards to leadership in their theology and leadership in their administration. And Paul, the guy who had started all this, left. No real strong leader stands up and guides the church in the right directions. But a lot of different people came rushing in to try to fill Paul's void and lead them in a lot of bad ways. So you had people coming in, bringing all sorts of cultural influences, messing with their theology, and and just the church really got completely messed up. And so they had false teaching, cultural influences, administrative issues, moral issues, lawsuits. It was just a mess going on. And so a letter was written to Paul, as you know, and then he got a visit from an entourage saying this church is messed up. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to deal with the problems that he heard about. And he deals with them quite severely. He actually wrote two letters. The first letter, 1 Corinthians tells us, was a harsh letter. And which is interesting because if you remember the things we've dealt with in 1 Corinthians, to think that the first letter was a little more blunt and a little more harsh is pretty interesting. I'd love to read that letter. 
Uh, Some people even believe that maybe Paul wrote that one out of anger and out of the flesh and that that's the reason that God chose not to preserve it and thereby it didn't end up in our Bible today. That it was written from Paul's flesh as he just went, and so it just disappeared. Maybe, it would be like Paul. But that first letter disappears. He writes a second letter though And he sends it with Timothy, and it comes to the church, and that's the letter that has been preserved by the Holy Spirit, God's Word through Paul, known as 1 Corinthians. And in one sense, 1 Corinthians was very effective, because as we read 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of things that 1 Corinthians dealt with that don't come up anymore. We hear nothing else about sexual immorality on the church. We don't hear anything about the lawsuits going back and forth. He doesn't talk anymore about drunkenness in the church at communion. None of those kind of things. So it seems on one level there's been a lot of successes that Paul's letter has achieved a a lot of successes. But not everyone in Corinth received 1 Corinthians well. See, there were people in Corinth who had a lot to lose by Corinth changing its practices within the church. People of power, people of influence, people with money, people who liked their little idols of sin and sensuality and all these sorts of things. And if things shifted, if the church did what Paul called them to do, repented and lived the way God wanted them to do, they stood to gain, or excuse me, stood to lose quite a bit. And so they reacted by attacking Paul. They begin to speak out against the person who had wrote 1 Corinthians, and they attack him on many levels. You'll see these issues coming up as we go through 2 Corinthians. They attack his motives. They attack his methods. They attack his person. They they, they say his calling's not real. He's not a real apostle. He wasn't one of the 12. They'll talk about his ability. He's not that eloquent. He's not a great teacher. They'll talk about his appearance. He's just plain ugly. They're going to bring all these things up as a way of trying to undermine the things that Paul is teaching. It's not that dissimilar from what we can tend to do today ourselves. When a word comes to us that convicts us about something going on in our life, we have the opportunity to either repent and do what God is calling us to do or to ignore it. But, but if we're Christians especially, the Holy Spirit's at work and it's convicting us and this word's come, so we got to do something with it. It's hard to ignore God, right? And so here's what people will tend to do. And we see this happening a lot today. If we're not going to repent and follow God's word, then one of the things we can do to try to deal with that is find reasons, or we might call them justifications, so that we don't have to follow them. We might try to to attack the, the person who's delivering the message. We might try to say, well, that guy's saying that, but look at him. Look what he does, and look what he does, and look what he does, and try to use them as reasons not to do this. It's really the same kind of arguments little kids do. Well, Timmy's doing it. Same thing. But trying to find ways to undermine the person or undermine the message or undermine the, the word somehow to give us a reason not to have to follow it. We don't like the word that's come. We don't want to follow it. We've got to do something with it. Guys, this is happening a lot. We might have to just take a Sunday at some point to talk about this because it's a very confusing and difficult, painful even issue going on big time in our country right now. Um, we were in Israel only to find out that in Oregon, for example, rules with regards to gay marriage were overturned while we were over there. We found that out while we were gone. I was like, man, I leave for two weeks and the whole place... <laughs> But that's a difficult passage, that's a, or it's a difficult topic. And we're finding Christians conflicted. 
And it's a passage we don't want to draw hard lines on, and we want to have compassion for people. And, and even in some senses, we, we don't want to set ourselves up as the old school people that are unbending. And there's a lot of things that make it very difficult. And so a lot of people in the church, they've been given this word. They don't know what to do with it. You can't just ignore it. And so trying to find ways to undermine it, either by saying things like, well, that's the same Bible that talks about slavery. Or, no, that, that person teaching was only this. And just whatever we can do to try to change it, undermine it, give us the ability not to have to follow it. And this is what was going on right here. Paul is being attacked by those who stand to lose a lot if Corinth changes. And so these people are just hammering Paul as he's gone. So Paul gets word from his boy Timothy that things aren't good. And history tells us then that Paul makes an emergency visit to Corinth to go deal with this. He sent the letter Some repentance and stuff is happening, yes, but there's all kinds of conflict going on and they're throwing Paul under the bus and he's like, all right, enough with the letters, I gotta go. And so as we'll see going through 2 Corinthians, Paul made a trip to Corinth to go deal with it in person, face to face, and it was awful. He refers to it in his letter as an incredibly difficult passage or visit. He calls it a severe or sorrowful. It was a very bitter visit from Paul. And the reason is, the best that people can put together is, is that when Paul arrived, the people that were his enemies, that were aligned against him, totally threw him under the bus, publicly ridiculed him, tried to attack every fiber of who he is and what he stands for, and no one from his church did anything. No one stood up for him. No one defended him. No one stood there and said, wait a minute, you can't say this about this guy. And it was a bitter, bitter visit. And so Paul returned from Corinth back to Ephesus very shortly, broken, sad, grieving, beaten down by his visit there. And he writes a letter to them again that you'll see referenced in 2 Corinthians. He refers to it as a sorrowful letter and again as a severe letter dealing with things. And and, and in it, he calls them, he's like, look, you need to honor God by rejecting these people that are speaking into your lives. And you need to stand, I'm your spiritual father. These are accurate teachings. You should defend me against these people. And, And he writes this other letter to send to them. And he comes up to a guy named Titus that we'll probably get to in about two decades. And Titus doesn't want to deliver the letter. He's like, are you kidding me? Your trip was a disaster. What shot do I have going there and speaking the truth? But Paul convinces Titus to go and deliver this letter. And he tells them, I have confidence in my kids. I have confidence in that church that when they receive this letter, they will understand the truth of this word and that they will repent. Titus is like, all right. And so he delivers the letter. Sometime later, Paul and Titus reconnect, most likely in Macedonia. And Titus gives report to Paul how things went. And it's good news, bad news. The good news is, you know what, Paul, they're really sorry. They've repented for how they've treated you, how they've uh, uh, disrespected you, how they've ignored you. They understand your calling. They understand who you are. And they're, they're sorrowful and repentance with regards to that. And that's great. So what's the bad news? Well, the bad news Paul will refer to later and a couple of times in this letter as the super apostles. Now, these are not X-Men or superheroes or anything like that. Paul says super apostles with kind of this thing, super apostles. If they did that back in Corinth, I don't know what the punctuation was, super apostles. I don't know. But he would have done that. 
And and the idea is, is that a group of people had kind of arrived in Corinth and risen to preeminence and influence there by showcasing their supreme spirituality. And, and, and they would play themselves against Paul. When they arrived, people with bad theology and bad ideas, and who are the first people they connect with when they get to Corinth, they connect with the people that had, had issues with Paul, of course. And so he, they find influence with these people, and they start showcasing their own importance and their own, um, their, their own spirituality, that we are more spiritual than Paul, we are more blessed than Paul, we are more eloquent than Paul, we are stronger than Paul, And the people of Corinth start really kind of looking up to them. We don't hate Paul anymore, but these guys have some cool stuff to say. And they begin to teach the people of Corinthians a kind of Christian existence that was completely different from what Paul has presented to them. Instead of suffering, they promise glory. Instead of service, they promise wealth and prosperity. And they begin teaching this message to them that is completely different than what Paul's said before. Self-exaltation, self-glory, self-focused prosperity. Sounds really familiar. And this is the message going to these people. And listen, to the Corinthian people, this is right up their alley. Because if you remember our history about the people in Corinth, that city's actually not very old, but it was rebuilt by the Romans as a trade city because of its valuable location. And so it became a massive commercial crossroads and people from all over the world flooded into the city. There's hardly any natives in that city of Corinth. They're all people from other lands that moved there specifically to make it big. And so suddenly here comes some guy trying to teach about the same faith and the same Christian experience, but with a way different angle. This guy's not talking about giving things away and serving. This guy's talking about how we can be blessed and grow and have money and do all these things. And hey, that's why we came. We came here to make it big. And so the people are totally buying into it. And so while Paul's encouraged that there's been some repentance, he's really troubled because as you're going to see going through the letter, the people of Corinth are still infants spiritually. They still haven't grown up. As he said in in 1 Corinthians, they're still on the milk of the word. They haven't been able to grow up. And the primary reason is they're really self-focused. They're really focused on themselves and their own glory and their own experiences, and they haven't grown into Christian maturity yet. So when Paul writes this letter, he has a significant task on his hand that's very complicated compared to the first letter. You see, he needs to deal with some specific issues. The people in Corinth need help on several areas. He needs to address theological errors, cultural influences again, different ones, but they're there. He needs to teach them how to discern true apostles as opposed to hucksters so they know who to listen to and who to ignore. He needs to restore his own relationship with the Corinthian people. He needs to somehow convince them that the things that he's speaking to them, though they are hard things, that he speaks them with their best interests at heart, all the while defending his own reputation against people that are throwing him under the bus. I mean, the things people have said about him give people all sorts of reasons to ignore him. I mean, the accusations against Paul alone, for example, they've said that, well, Paul's greedy and sneaky. I know Paul told you that he doesn't take money from you guys, but have you ever noticed he's always asking you guys for an offering for churches and other areas? Paul's taking from that money. 
That's how he's succeeding. He's taking from you guys. He's just being sneaky about it. Paul's going to deal with that in this letter. They're going to say, Paul's a theological bully. He just wants to lord over people and throw hard words at people and just be this big shot and just bully over all of you guys. They're going to say that he's unqualified. They're going to doubt his calling. And they're going to point to his situations as proof. They're going to say, look, if this guy is some treasured apostle chosen by God, why is he going through all the stuff? I mean, if he's so special, why does he keep getting beaten and shipwrecked and all this stuff is happening to him? If God had such a calling on him, wouldn't God take care of his boy? And then they'll point to their own prosperity as, look, here's how you can know that we are blessed and chosen of God. Look how God has blessed us. Look how God has protected us. Look how God has poured into us. They're going to point out that he restricts spiritual development because he keeps talking about this serving stuff and suffering garbage. And they're also going to say that he's not an eloquent teacher. His teachings are just filled with nonsense and condemnation. Notice how they always make you feel bad, Corinth? That can't be from God. And then they're going to finish with, by the way, he's weak and he's just physically repulsive. So think about that. You're Paul, and you've got to write a letter dealing with all these issues and also somehow trying to defend your character from all of these sorts of things. That's a complicated and difficult letter to write, especially when you have been beaten down and disappointed by this group of people over and over and over. So Paul gets that report from Titus, and he sits down, and he puts pen to paper, if you will, and by God, the Spirit through him, he writes a letter to the people in Corinth that has been preserved by the Spirit of God and is referred to and known as 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, he writes to them and starts out the same way to remind them who he is. He starts out the letter by saying, I am an apostle called by God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not one of the original 12, but by special revelation, Jesus came himself to Paul, called him and ministered to him. He states the authority again. And again, he says to the church in Corinth. Actually, literally what that says is to the church of God that has its being in Corinth. The idea being you are part of a living organism that spans way farther than just your tiny little city. You are connected with followers of God from before your church existed. You will be connected with people who follow God after your church exists. You are part of something much bigger than just yourselves, the global body of Christ. God's church, the part that has its being in Corinth, that's who you are. But as similar as these two introductions are, do not misunderstand them to be written with the same tone. Paul might write the first one by saying, hey, what are you doing? First of all, I am Paul, you're the church, stop sleeping with your mom. I mean, just dealing with some stuff, right? Fired up. Second Corinthians has a completely different feel. Completely different feel. If Paul's angry when he writes Galatians, and he is, hilariously so. If he's joyful when he writes Philippians, and he is, though imprisoned, then Paul is sorrowful and broken when he writes 2 Corinthians. He is a man 
who is filled and has dealt with and walked through sorrow and difficulty and brokenness. And he writes this from a completely different heart because these are his kids. And they've rejected him over and over and they're believing lies about him. And these are people he's been on his knees praying for, pouring his heart out for them. In 1 Corinthians, he refers to them as his spiritual children. He says, I'm your spiritual father. And and in other places in 1 Corinthians, he says, you are the seal of my apostleship. In other words, when people say, how do I know that you're really apostle? He says, the Corinthians, they prove my calling. These are people that he, I mean, he puts so much emphasis and he has so much love for these people. And over and over, it's just fallen short. The words have fallen to the ground. He's been beaten back over and over and over. And so now he's writing another letter from a hurt place. And so after his little introduction, what's the first thing that he's going to say to these people? People that have let him down and abandoned him. Have you ever been abandoned and let down by someone and thought about sending an email? What's the first thing that comes to your mind to write? You bleepity bleep. You whatever. Dirty rat. Isn't that what the old guy in the movies used to say? So what's the first thing Paul's going to say to these guys that have let him down like this? Well, maybe a scathing rebuke. Maybe start out by vilifying those that have been throwing him under the bus over and over. Maybe like John, call down fire from heaven on our enemies. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, there's some cultural things going on here, but they shed great light on this passage. It was customary to open a letter, first with that greeting, that salutation that says, this is who I am, and this is who I'm writing to. And then there was a custom that you would include sort of an opening prayer or blessing. And particularly, the Jewish people would open letters up with a particular prayer or blessing, but not, not just any blessing or thanksgiving in general, but giving thanks to God for something that they themselves had experienced. So the average Jewish person when writing these letters would include this letter and they would start out with this thanksgiving to God, giving God thanks for something that they themselves had been through and had experienced. So what is Paul giving thanks for? Comfort. The God of all comfort who comforts us. This is what he himself was experiencing from God. He is giving thanksgiving to God for the comfort that God has given him through difficulty. And in this, he gives us the theme of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. He calls him the God of all comfort. Paul himself has experienced this comfort and now, even as he writes, desires to extend that same comfort to the Corinthian people. This is what he's writing. It's an incredibly gracious and amazing introduction. 
Comfort itself comes up 31 times. That word's going to come up 31 times in the entirety of the New Testament. But out of those 31 times, 25 of them were written by Paul. Infinite majority, right? 25 of them were written by Paul. And then out of those 25 times that the word comfort comes up in, the, in Paul's writings in the New Testament, 17 of them occur in this book. This book speaks about comfort more than any of Paul's writings, and Paul is the author who speaks about comfort more than anyone else in the New Testament. But, but not only that, this first paragraph here, the word comfort here comes up 10 times, 10 of the 17 times. This is the most emphasized passage on comfort that Paul will write, the author of the most passages on comfort in the entire New Testament. But there's another side to that because the word affliction is going to come up a lot too. Affliction comes up 45 times in the New Testament, 24 of them in Paul's letters. Again, he's in the lead there. Out of his 24 times in in any of his letters, nine of them occur here in 2 Corinthians. And out of those nine, four of them occur here in this first passage, making it the passage that also talks the most about affliction. Because you see, Paul talks more than anyone else about comfort because Paul talks more than anyone else about suffering and difficulty. He's acquainted with both. You say, why? So why does Paul talk about this? Is that just his thing? Is that his field of expertise? So that's what he talks about? No, because Paul knows very well, firsthand, that those who follow Jesus Christ, for the people who choose to follow Jesus Christ, suffering is inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable. If you choose to follow Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter what time in life or history you live in, suffering is inevitable. That's why he writes in verse five, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. He says we're sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. What does he mean by that? He can't mean the crucifixion. Because he speaks very clearly about the passion of Jesus Christ as being a once-in-history occurrence, that it happened and it's already over. And so we can't now go back and share in the sufferings of Christ, and we couldn't do it anyway. So he's not talking about that. What is he talking about when he says we share in Christ's sufferings? What he's speaking of here is that as we choose to follow Christ, it's another way of saying what Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That in choosing to follow Jesus, you are making a conscious decision to accept a massive or at least a certain degree of some sort of suffering and difficulty in life. That's what it means, Christ's sufferings. Because you're part of a world and a kingdom that is completely at odds with the kingdom of the world out there. You're living for something completely different than everything else in the world calls you to live for. And so Paul knows that you're going, to di- you're going to have difficulty. But the good news is, is that it does say, though, that through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Or in other words, no matter how much difficulty we come into, no matter how much adversity we face, the grace and comfort of God is always there to overcome it. That's good news. Amen? No matter what you go through, no matter what you go through, the grace and comfort of God is more than enough. That'll be a theme going through this passage. My grace is sufficient for you, he will say. So there's this remarkable introduction because this is the guy who needed comfort more than anyone else at that time, probably. I mean, this is one of the most emotional letters in the entire Bible. 
And he's speaking of his desire to the people who actually caused his suffering. And he's writing about the comfort of God. Now, now we're going to be dealing with this topic of comfort and suffering a lot as we go through this book. So we don't have to do an all-inclusive, let's hit every aspect of suffering and comfort right here because it's a beautiful day out and you'd like to get home before dark, right? And we've got, we've got time. Um, but there are two things that we really need to understand that Paul brings up in this particular passage that'll be a really good foundation and framework for us moving forward. And the two things are that God is the source of all comfort and that God has a unique and specific mechanism that he uses to, uh, to deliver comfort. God is the source of comfort, and he has a specific and uni- unique way of delivering comfort. So let's look at those two. Number one, God is the source of all comfort. It says it here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort. There is no, hear me here, there is no, lasting, real comfort that comes from any other place. It says, he's the God of how much comfort? Like you mean it? He's the God of how much comfort? All comfort. All comfort. In a way, that seems a little weird. I mean, people find comfort in a lot of places. I've been meeting with a small group of guys over the last few weeks, and we've got a few weeks yet still to go, looking at some specific things every Friday morning, just a small group of us getting together to get in the Word. And uh, one of the things we've been looking at and studying over the last few weeks is the wells, if you will, like water, the wells that people run to when life gets difficult and dry. And we've taken in some teachings, we've looked at some scriptures about this, and, and really you could kind of classify, um, no matter what it is that we run to when life gets hard, you can kind of break it down into four specific areas. Number one, when life gets hard or difficult or disappointing or when we're hurting or whatever, a lot of people run to other people. I'll run to these people and they will fix what's wrong with me. So, so we have things like, my life seems empty, my life seems meaningless, I don't know what to do, but if I just had that husband, or if I just had that wife, that person can fix this for me. And we put, or maybe it's children. If I just had kids, then I would have someone that loves me and I would love them and, and things would be good. And so we can look to a specific well where we put, a, a, you, it puts an incredible burden on people. You know that? That they become our savior. I mean, my wife, I, I had a great time with my mom visiting over the last few weeks. And my mom, um, who has never been anything but critical about every girlfriend I ever had, all two of them, my entire life growing up. But um, my mom was always critical, but my mom is so complimentary about my wife. She, every time I'm around her, she starts talking about how she was praying for my wife before, uh, when I was even born. And she, was, she even said this, this week, she was like, your wife is perfect for you. Like where you are in life, the things that you guys are doing, even for the church, your wife is perfect for you. And, and she is, and she, she is such a valuable resource for me and such a comfort to me in so many ways. But here's what she's not. She's not my savior. She's a really bad savior if I put that on her because as much as I love her, she's a sinner just like me, just like you. And there's gonna come times where she's gonna let me down. If I put too much emphasis on her to complete and fulfill me, 
then she's going to buckle under that weight. It's not fair to her. We're going to grow disillusioned with one another. It could destroy our relationship, and I'm going to be left just as, dis- just as disappointed and disillusioned as I was before. And we put emphasis on people to be our savior when they're created to turn to God, it's not going to work. Be careful, young people, how much weight you put on the shoulders of your spouses or your boyfriends or your girlfriends or whoever that may be. They're not designed to hold that. Only Christ is designed to be that. So some people, when life's hard, they're like, that person will fix me, and they run to people. Another place people run to is to the world. Well, I'm struggling, and so I need some help. I'll find comfort in drugs, alcohol, money, sex, you name it, whatever those things are. And I think to some degree or another, we've all dipped in that well before and found that it's a pretty shallow one, haven't we? But it lies to us, and it says, no, you need more, you need more, you need more. And we just keep dipping in this well that never satisfies us ever, regardless of the fact that Jesus says, all who drink of me, you will never thirst again. We're like, forget it, forget it. Right now, I'm gonna, this car is going to fix me. I mean, these things that just get old, if I just had that, I would be happy. The new iPhone's coming out soon. Anyone excited? I am. And ads are going to come out and they're going to tell you that this is the thing that you need to solve all of your problems. And I love Apple stuff. I'm a Mac guy, but they are lies. Because as excited as we are about our shiny gadget, we're going to spend the first six months fixing all the problems, aren't we? And by the time we fix it, something else is going to come up. And you know they designed those phones to stop working at a certain point, so you have to get a new one, right? I mean, it's just, it's never going to satisfy you, and, but that's always the case. How many people run to sex thinking that's what's going to satisfy them? And the moment you're done, have you had that guilt sweep over you? The moment you've been on that website, the moment you've been with that person, and you feel it, it didn't work. But we just keep running right back to it over and over and over. But if it's not the world... And if it's not people, then we'll often run to religion. And that might be one that people are doing right now. Life's rough. I better go back to church. I better start giving again. If I start doing these things, life will all come back into line and it'll get easy again. And so I will save myself by doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this. I will do all of these different things and by doing them, I will gain God's approval again. And it is was never designed to be that. I, I, I love what Matt Chandler says. It, running to religion to be your savior, that's just like running to people, but it's got a choir robe on. Because you're just running to yourself. You're just putting yourself up as God. I can save me. I can fix me. Are we, how frustrated have you been in your life because you know you can't do that, and yet we try over and over and over. Those of you that grew up in the church, how many times at night did you lay in bed begging forgiveness from your sins and saying to God for the millionth time, I will never do that thing again, knowing you're gonna say it again in a week. And yet we run to that. But God says here in 2 Corinthians, I am the God of all comfort. All lasting comfort comes from God. Nothing else will ever satisfy you. It might look really good. It might taste really good for a while, but nothing else in this world will satisfy you. It's important to know that. 
It's going to be a basis of all of Paul's writing on this letter. God is the God of all mercy, the God of all comfort. The second thing that's important for us to notice is God's unique plan for providing that comfort to other people. He's the God of all comfort. He's the producer, if you will. He's the factory, the source of all comfort. And so now he's going to distribute that comfort to his people. So what are the ways in which God distributes comfort to people? Well, first of all, we have God's word, do we not? I mean, God's word. 1 Thessalonians 4 is that famous passage that's read at many memorial services and things like that. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. He says, hey, those who have died and gone on before us, I don't want you to grieve like it's hopeless. There's hope here. And he goes on to talk about how God is going to bring those who are in Christ and have died before us with him. We're going to be reunited in eternity. It's this beautiful passage. And it ends in verse 18 by saying, therefore, encourage one another or comfort one another with these words. So he says right there, these words, the word of God itself will bring comfort to you. When you're going through things, man, the word of God is like water to our souls. It brings comfort. Another one of the most famous passages for memorial services, probably the one I use at funerals more than any other passage is in John 14. When Jesus is with the apostles, the last supper, the passion's about to happen. There's a lot of fear, worry, what's going on? And Jesus sees it in their eyes and he wants to comfort his apostles. And so he says to him in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. It's another way of saying what? Be comforted. Be comforted. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. And it's the beautiful passage about in my father's house or many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Bad things are about to happen, but you have hope. Be comforted in these words. So God comforts us through his word. Number two, he comforts us through the Holy Spirit. In that same exact passage, actually, in John 14, verse 26, Jesus goes on to say, but the comforter. He refers, he's not talking about a blanket. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. It's not like blanky. We've been there, right? But no, the comforter will come. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and comfort you. He says, verse 26, the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I said to you. So it's, it's really, in some ways, another way of saying that God's word is what's going to comfort us. Because he says the Holy Spirit's going to come, calls him our comforter, and says he's going to remind you of the things that I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit is our comforter. God's word is our comforter. But the third thing that Paul brings up here in 2 Corinthians that's important for us to understand is that comforted people are the mechanisms by which God it extends comfort to his people. Verse three, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble 
the King James says, or as the, the ESV says, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted. Paul reiterates this in verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the sufferings that we suffer. One of the primary ways by which God extends comfort to his people is through the people of God. Now look, we believe strongly here in the need in specific cases for professional, biblical, even doctor level counseling. There are things like traumas and uh, uh, abandonment and mental disorders, mental illness, things like that that are very real. And God has blessed, especially us in our generation, with gifted, godly people to be able to deal with these things. And we believe strongly. We have, we have counselors and psychologists in town that are godly, Christian, Bible-based people that we refer to even as counselors ourselves when we see things that are a little above our pay grade, if you will. We believe pastors are great pastors, but not great psychologists. And so we take advantage of the tools that God has given us. But that is not intended to be the primary vehicle by which God comforts his people. The primary vehicle by which God comforts his people should be the body of Christ right here comforting one another. There should never be a time when we, people, grow in our faith to such a point that we no longer need the body of Christ. God's design is that broken people going through difficulty experience God's comfort and then comfort others in the same way. That's God's design. There is a phenomenal book on this. Those of you that are readers, write this down. It is a phenomenal book by Paul Tripp, and it's called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And, and the, the subtitle, really, of that book is People in Need of Change Helping People in Need of Change. That's what God does. God rarely uses the professionals in most situations. He uses the saved because it's the Spirit of God working through him. As you're going to see going through 2 Corinthians, it's in our weakness that God is made strong. So he uses the weak to confound the wise, to do ministry for those who are in difficulty. And so God has an amazing, some of you are writing, you're writing the book title down, yeah? Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. Incredible, incredible book. Not written to professionals, written to the church to say your design as the church is to minister to other people and to help people through difficult times. And so this understanding has two major implications and then we'll be done. Two major implications of this. The first of which is this. Please hear me on this. God's absolute design is that every Christian be in community with other Christians. You've got to know this. This is not just like we'll keep people in church by saying this. This is a biblical truth. I mean, to the early church, to Paul, to the writers of the New Testament, a Christian not being a part of a community of other Christians, unthinkable. They wouldn't even be able to fathom that someone would be Lone Ranger Christians like we have a lot of in our country today, that independent spirit, I don't need to know anyone else and they don't need to know me, I'll just take in the teachings or take in the word or maybe I'll just stay home and just read on my own, but I'm not gonna be part of community. That would be unthinkable to Paul. Everything they write is designed and written with the understanding that it's part of community even by which we're taking it in. The letters are written to church communities. 
And so this is really important because the early church would look at this and they would say, wait, you're, you're not in church? You're not in a community? You're not known, participating actively in the life of other believers? I go to church. I listen to the teaching, but I go home. I don't really have to mix it up with people, fellowship with other Christians. And I, kind of, I don't really do any of that. So they would say, well, how do you get filled? How do, how do you get filled? How do you receive the comfort that Paul talks about here? How do, you, how do you do that? When we were in Israel, we went to the Dead Sea one day. And the Dead Sea, when we were there, we found some actually really distressing and disturbing news. Um, the Dead Sea right now is actually um, a major ongoing ecological disaster. Because the Dead Sea is fed primarily by the Jordan River, really only, I guess you'd say, by the Jordan River. Um, the Jordan River is the lifeblood of Israel. When you're in Israel, you find out quickly how important water is. It seems like everywhere you go, they're talking about water, water sources. There's a river, there's a lake. Because you're in its deserted, uh, desert area everywhere else. And so you find quickly that when Jesus talks about the water of life and all these things, it comes way more vivid when you understand these things. And the Jordan River in particular, um, it's like a green thread right through a desert area. And it's amazing the importance this river has in the culture. But it's being grossly mismanaged. And so you've got Jordan on one side taking water out. You've got Israel on the other doing all of their irrigation and stuff. And no one's figured how to temper use. They're, they're actually doing work now in Israel, desalinization plants where they're getting salt water and converting it over. But they have a major issue. The Dead Sea is shrinking fast because not enough water's coming into it. In fact, if you went 15, 20 years ago, it doesn't look the same to you anymore. There's actually a giant dry spot in the middle that they dredged a channel. Right now, the Dead Sea is two pools with a channel between them. That's not what your Bible maps look like. And, and what they're saying is, is that in as short as 30 years from now, if something doesn't change, there will be no Dead Sea. It will be completely dry. In fact, while we were there, we saw hotels that were once bustling resorts. There's all these resort places along the Dead Sea there. And we saw hotels that were once oceanfront resorts that are no longer anywhere near water. And they're empty and closed and out of business. Just massive buildings just sitting there because the water has receded so much they're no longer oceanfront hotels. Hotels that people who did Holy Land tours years and years ago would have stayed in and now they're just bankrupt. And guys, that's what happens. That's the danger that you take when you withdraw from Christian community. You go, no, but I get the word of God and I have the Holy Spirit. And yeah, the Bible also says that it's a threefold cord that is not easily broken. And there is something about fellowship with Christians. You are starving yourself from resources when you withdraw from Christian community from one another. Who, who knows you when you're going through difficulty? Who can you trust that's going to bring biblical counsel to you and is going to be there for mercy? How are you known? I mean, you're completely running a risk of becoming just like one of those hotels when difficulty comes, when dry seasons come. And then also, they would say, well, if you're not part of a community, how is it that you're pouring into others? What are you doing to pour into other people? Because there's another interesting thing about the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has no outlet. And so as you guys know, the river comes in, but it doesn't out, it, there's no outlet anywhere. And as a result, though it's a beautiful water, it's very clear, but it's incredibly salty. They tell you when you go there to go, you go, we went out, float in the water. It's weird and fun and slimy and all that. But you know what else it is? Painful. If you had a little abrasion on my leg there, you get in the water, whoo. And they tell you, do not put your head underwater when you're in the Dead Sea. Do not. 
If you do it, immediately run to the shore. A lifeguard will meet you there because it is going to burn like crazy. They even tell you, guys especially, don't go to the bathroom in the Dead Sea. Like you just don't. This, this salad, there's so much salt in that water. It's incredibly dangerous, even deadly if you caught yourself out there and got into some trouble. And this is the truth. I mean, if you don't have fresh life pouring into you and then you're pouring back out, you run the risk of becoming stagnant and dead. We're created to be vessels that are pouring out into other people, not consumers who just take, 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 but vessels by which God's mercy flows through us to other people. And honestly, guys, look, I can just say this. We need you. Because if you're not plugged in and part of a godly community, of a Christian community, if, if you're here and you're not participating in part of the body of Christ, not only are you ripping yourself off by not putting yourself in a place to be able to receive everything that God has for you through community, but, but it takes from us, essentially, the things that God might want to do through you that would be a blessing to the rest of us. And we need that. I mean, I want everything that God might have, and I understand that God can work through anyone to accomplish his, his works. And so we need you. And there is something about seeing how God works through people that's unbelievable. I saw this just incredible story that illustrates this so well. Um, you guys know who uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, Correct. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a theologian, a German theologian around in the 1940s during the time that, that Nazi and all this kind of stuff was going on in World War II. And he was a hero, absolute hero. Um, he actually was a, started out by, as he saw that the church in Germany taking on this, this Nazi doctrine and, and so much of the church in Germany participating in this Aryan race stuff that was going on, he was one of the few that stood up and said, no way. And he was one of the principal authors of the Barman Declaration that rejected Nazi ideology. And as a result of that, he became kind of known. He became um, the founder and, or the leader of the Confessing Church in Germany, which was still holding to good biblical values. He became the founder of the underground seminary that was eventually shut down by the Gestapo. He became um, a leader in the resistance movement. Did you guys ever see the Tom Cruise movie, Valkyrie? Um, that movement, that even that operation right there had roots in this resistance movement that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a part of. Um, but as a result of all that also, he became a huge target for the Nazis. And so in 1943, he was arrested and he was put in prison for treason and all kind of espionage, all this stuff. But while he was in prison, he wrote letters to his family members and other people that were after his death, years later, collected together and they were published under a book title, Letters from Prison. It's very Paul-like in a lot of ways, writing these letters from prison. And in particular, one letter contained a poem. And that poem became known as New Year 1945. And it was a poem that Bonhoeffer wrote to his fiancée. She was outside, her name was Maria, let me see if I can get this name right, Maria von Wedmeyer. And, and Maria was outside, not imprisoned. And, and, you know, here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer in prison. She was the love of his life. And so he writes her this poem called New Year's 1945. And stanza three of that particular poem is famous. This poem talks about God's providence through difficult situations and how God works through these things. And, and we can trust God. There's hope. God's in control no matter how bad things out there get. And in stanza three, he says... Should it be ours to drain the cup of, dreamy, of grieving, even to the dregs of pain? 
No, at thy command, we will not falter, thankfully receiving everything that is given by your loving hand. It's, it's very much a Paul-like poem where he's talking to God even, and he says, whatever you send our way, we will be thankful for because God is good. Incredible poem. So he writes this letter to Maria von Widmeyer, his fiance. Three years later, he's murdered. He's hung by the Nazi soldiers and killed. But the story doesn't end there. It'd be a really lame story if it did, right? So 18 years later, there's another grieving bride-to-be in the United States at this time. And her husband, right before their wedding, dies in this traumatic, unexpected accident. And she's just grieving and weeping, and someone gives to her Letters from Prison by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and she comes across that particular poem, New Year 1945, and is blessed by it. It reminds her that she can trust God through this difficult situation. She's so moved that she gives it to her dead fiance's parents. The dad's name is Joe Bailey, mother's name Mary Lou. Gives them this poem. This ministered to me. You guys should check this out. And and Joe, in particular, is really blessed by this poem. It just helps rebuild his faith, and he's encouraged, and, and he's so blown away. It even moves him to start writing. And so Joe writes a book that you can still get on Amazon. It's called Heaven. And this book, Heaven, is about a conversation between him and God about what heaven's like. Now think about this, guys. His son just died. He's been moved by this poem. And so he writes this book about what heaven's going to be like. You know full well thinking about his son being there. And and this book resolves so beautifully and really comes to the conclusion. In fact, Amazon's actual description to this day says, in this imagined conversation with God, Joe explores what heaven will be like. And ultimately, whether life is kind and gentle or fierce and disappointing, our best and final hope is to live forever in the presence of God. And this is the book that he writes. But the letter doesn't stop, or the story doesn't stop there. Twelve years after that, some 30 years after Bonhoeffer wrote that letter in prison and died, twelve years after that, Joe Bailey gets a phone call from a friend of his in Boston who happens to be a pastor. And this pastor, the night before and then that morning, was ministering to a woman who was terminally ill and was dying, and he has Joe's book. And so he comes to her, and he brings this book about heaven to this dying woman. And he tells Joe, this woman stayed up all night. The doctors could not take the book out of her hand. She read it cover to cover. And when I came back in the next morning, she was so happy and she was so filled with hope and so filled with joy and so moved by this book that you wrote. And just a couple hours later, she died. And I just thought you would love to know that, that it really ministered to someone. Oh, by the way, you know what her name was? Maria von Wedmeyer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's fiance, who he wrote the original letter to, ends up being the one in this prison years later that's ministered to by this letter, that got ministered to by that guy's letter. Do you see how God works? And you go, man, that's, that's, that story's kind of extreme. It's completely ordinary. It happens all the time. Oh, it may not cover multiple continents, but those of you that have wrestled with cancer, who was the most comforting people to talk, through, talk to? Believers who were strengthened in their faith through what? Cancer. 
This is how God works. Those of you that have lost children, those of you that are barren and can't have children, I mean me, the things that my dad and I went through and when he abandoned the family, to be able to come, do you know how many times I've been able to sit down with people with dad issues just like I've had and be able to share the comfort that God comforted me with with them? Well, of course I wish I had a relationship with my dad and of course I wish he hadn't abandoned the family and all those things. I, there's a sense in which I wouldn't trade that because it is such a joy and privilege to be able to sit with someone who's going through hardship and be able to say, look, God is with you. To be able to share comfort with one another in the way God comforted you. But, and we're gonna have to close. I went way longer than I meant to. It's a bad omen for the rest of this book, right? But, but there is something specific that you need to understand about that too. That means that all of life is ministry. Hear that. Every bit of your life is ministry. All of it. All of your experiences. Everything you go through. Good, bad, highs, lows. Everything you go, to is, go through is the potential for ministry. That brings such a dynamic to the Christian life. And, and specifically, when Paul uses the word comfort and he says comfort, he, he's not talking about just getting by. It doesn't just mean endure. In fact, the more literal translation for the word comfort that he uses translates more literally comfort that is energized. Comfort that is energized. Comfort that changes moods. Comfort that opens eyes to new ways through things. See, the idea is Paul's not saying that we as Christians just deliver, we just stand with people when bad times come and just help them get through. But no, we redirect their vision to something that instills hope. Not just you'll get through, but you'll get through to something way, way better. That God is at work. Because the same word comfort, paraclesis, that he uses, and then he had a lot of different options, is the same word Paul also uses in Philippians when he says, if there be any comfort, paraclesis, in Christ, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness, even in the death of, likeness of men, and even being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above all names. The hope that we give, Christians, when you're ministering to one another, I'm almost done, I promise. The hope that we give when we stand with people that are going through difficulty is not You'll just get through, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of our suffering. And you go, no, but that, that's not gonna apply because they're already saved. They already have the gospel. No, 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 no. Look, the gospel reminds us that not only has God died for our sins, but that God is redeeming everything. God is putting, our definition of the gospel is too small. God is putting everything back together. God is going to end suffering. God is going to bring his children into fellowship with him in such a way that there will be no more difficulties. Our comfort will be right there in front of us. And so we come alongside people and we remind them of the gospel to say, listen, Jesus Christ has dealt with the most severe, the biggest problem you will ever have in your life is your sin. And he has already dealt with it. He died for it. 
And because of that, and because of the reality of the resurrection, you can trust him to get you through this thing. Because his word says he's got something amazing for you on the other side. And you see, you put their eyes on something different. It's not just a, we'll bunker down and get through this thing, but it is a, turn your eyes on Christ. Look to him. He'll get you through this. Not me, not the world, not religion. Jesus Christ is your savior. And you're in the middle of difficulty and pain. I know it, that's even normal, but Jesus is coming again. And therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen? Sam's gonna close us in song. Let's stand and pray. God, we thank you for this reminder, the reminder that we need you, the reminder that others need you, the reminder that you are the source of all comfort, and for the opportunity to be, Lord, a source or a a vessel of comfort for others. And I just pray, God, that even as we sing this last song, Lord, that these truths might be cemented in our hearts. That as we take this moment to just reflect and allow these truths that we've seen to sink in, Lord, into our hearts and minds. May we be once again completely blown away and enamored by your gospel. That you would come to the likes of us to save us is a miracle, Lord. And we're so grateful for the comfort that you have given to us. Lord, I pray for those that are in this place that have not experienced your comfort, that are still running to the world, still running to religion, whatever it may be. And I pray, God, that you would speak into their hearts of your love, I pray, God, that even now the people around them would minister to them, Lord. I pray, God, that you would save many. We thank you for your grace. This time we're going to sing and just take a moment. I know I went long, I'm sorry, but not really. But just take a moment to sing and reflect of your need for Christ and the truth that he answered your need. And if you have never come to Jesus, if you have never experienced the grace, if you have never experienced the